tonight we're going to go back to our series on the home, um, which is Bless This Home. And uh, the last couple times we were here, we looked at a couple messages on heart-to-heart parenting. And so tonight, I'm going to follow that up with another message dealing specifically with um, parenting. And uh, this is one that kind of has an eye towards the future of our children particularly. Um, and we're going to talk tonight about preparing for launch. Um, so there is a handout for this one tonight as well. If you didn't get that when you came in, it's on the bulletin table right out there. I'd encourage you to, to grab one of those so you can follow along. Um, now, I did what some pastors um, would consider to be the unpardonable sin, and I put blanks in your handout. Um, I was challenged on that. I've been challenged on that by people I know. Um, because it is really easy if there's blanks on your handout um, that, that you come in blank, okay, and you just sit there with a blank look until, well, there's a blank, so I'll fill it in, okay? Let me encourage you, just, that's not the only part I want you to take away from this tonight, okay, that, that I filled in every blank. Or don't let it ruin your life if you don't fill in every blank, okay? Um, I try to do that to, keep you, to help us, you know, follow along. So, um, but that'll help you at least tonight, hopefully give you an opportunity to take some notes along the way and uh, help you um, stay connected with where we are. Um, and again, like last time, there's a lot of applications I'm going to make here um, to um, teens in particular because uh, as our kids get older, these, these are things that in particular we're really going to be focusing on with our older kids. But these things don't start in the teen years of our kids' lives. They have to start earlier than that. We have to start these thought processes and these things sooner. Um, and if tonight uh, you come away with some things here and you say, wow, I should have been doing this a long time ago, don't let that discourage you either. I mean, I think that sometimes uh, gets in our minds too, like, wow, you know, we're kind of behind, so I guess it's whatever. It's not whatever, okay? Um, it's, never, it's not too late to, to engage and, and, and do these things. And maybe some of you are here tonight and you've raised kids, and you've, um, you, you've, they're already out of your home. Uh, these, this, this, these messages aren't intended to make you feel bad, like, oh, I should have done better. Um, these are to encourage you because you probably know people who are raising kids, and you can be an encouragement into their life and help them in these things as well um, and, and disciple them. Um, so we'll be all over in the passages tonight. Um, maybe a couple key passages we're going to begin with in a minute are Isaiah 43.7, 1 Corinthians 10.31, if you want to put your finger in one of those passages to look at. Um, I'll put the rest of them um, as we go up on the screen, um, so if you want to try to follow along, you're welcome to do that. But um, over the past few years, um, we have had a front row seat to the scientific process um, as we have dealt with this thing that everybody loves called COVID. Um, and we've seen how things in the laboratory, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work, right? Um, I think it's always great when, you know, when, you, when people go and they work in a laboratory and it provides real-life results, right? It, it makes your life better. Um, in 1953, a small laboratory in San Diego, California... Um, literally employed three people. Um, these three people came up with an invention that, that was designed really to save their company. Um, and ultimately, it affected the lives upon millions and millions of America. In fact, what they did in 1953, I dare say, has had ramifications on your life and probably still even in your home has ramifications today. See, the problem they were facing 
is uh, they had a problem with rust that was on the fuel tanks of their rockets. And that's a problem when you're, you know, trying to send these things up into the air and those things. And it took a lot of trial and error, but eventually in the laboratory they found something that would, that would keep the rust off of these fuel tanks. Um, but it wasn't long that after, after they, they came up with this invention that people realized, that the people in the laboratory realized they had, that, that, that there was a greater use than this, and so they began to sneak this stuff home and use it in their homes. Um, and so, you know, you, you'd wonder, how does a company react to that, you know, when people start taking proprietary property? We you know what they did? They reformatted their company and began to sell this to consumers. You know what that product is, by the way? It's, it's WD-40. Okay, how many of you have a can of that in your home? Because you can basically use that for, like, everything. I think it cures your arthritis, if I'm not mistaken, right? Okay? Uh, you try it and tell me how it goes, okay? Um, it, it's an amazing thing when, when, when here these people got together, and it's called WD-40 because it stands for water displacement, and it was the 40th try that they, that they came up with the stuff. Um, real ingenious naming technique, right? Um, but it's really amazing when something like that, it goes to the laboratory, and it just changes the lives of millions of people. Um, and I said to you last time in our message on heart-to-heart parenting that the, the teen years that we have our kids, especially in the teen years of their lives, um, this is the laboratory for adulthood. You are the instructor as you bring them through. Okay, how do we begin to put in practice the things that we have learned about God to make wise choices and decisions and, and, and shape their lives as they will be in adults? And so what we need to do is, is we need to teach our teens how to glorify God and prepare them to live an, a successful adult life. Here is a question that has asked, been asked not just in a church context, but by people all over the world. This question right here. What is the, yeah, I know you don't understand, Siri. Um, what is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of man? That question has been asked hundreds, thousands of years and received hundreds, if not thousands of answers. And it is a question that we have to answer if we're going to live effectively in this world. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. This is God talking to the Israelites, but it has a broader application to us, all of us, as God's creation today. 1 Corinthians 10.31, which is a verse I said, I have probably said hundreds of times in my life because we said it at camp every time before we ate a meal. It was 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the question is, what is the purpose of man? The answer is what? To glorify God. You and I were created in the image of God that's what the Bible tells us right at the beginning of Genesis, that, that, that we were created in the image of God. And therefore, as God's image bearers in this world, we are created to glorify God, to bring him honor and glory. God has created man to, to bring glory to himself. Now, sin has marred God's creation. It has marred the physical world we live in. It has marred 
more importantly, man. And we in and of ourselves are sinful beings. But Jesus Christ has come and died and risen again to redeem man from his sin. And because of this, we can see that the purpose of man to glorify God is realized in new life in God, in Jesus Christ. We can and must live out that purpose through Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see tonight is the drive of godly parents is to instill in the lives of their children the values and practical methods of glorifying God. We're going to take a look throughout the scriptures tonight and see as we prepare our kids to go out into a world that loves sin and hates God, that that vies for their attention more than, than, than it wants them to serve the Lord, that, that says there is no truth, your truth is the truth, we're going to, sh- to say, look, we, we have to prepare our kids to survive in this world, yes, and to live for this purpose. I'm going to glorify God with my life. It has to be personal. It has to be something we own. And so we can, we can help our kids learn these things while they still live in our homes, and, and there's several different areas we're going to look at it. Okay, The first area is in the area of our character. How do we live out a God-glorifying character in our lives? And, and what I have here is, that, you know, in a world of sin, we must teach our teens, our children, the value of godly character. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than, than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. This is what character is. What people know us by is important. Character is who you are at your very being and core. It's, it's, it's what you, what, what um, the, the, the presuppositions and the motivations for what you do in life. Why you do what you do. And if we're going to live lives to God's glory, we must reflect that to the world around us. Now, when it comes to character, I mean, what is it that the world values? Well, the world values values or values um, riches and status and self-gratification or success. I put that in huge quotation marks because of what the definition of success really is in a worldly standpoint. And it values these at any cost. Doesn't matter what you do as long as you get ahead in life and you get these things. Whatever it is you want, you do whatever it takes to get there. That's what the world values. But God values character that glorifies him above everything else. Look at this verse again in Proverbs chapter 22. A good name is to be chosen rather than what? Great riches. So if you don't have anything, but you have a life that glorifies God, that's worth more than everything. If you don't have anything, but you have a life that glorifies God, that's worth more than everything. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. The favor of God in our lives. We talk about this home, this series on the home, bless this home, and, and how we want God to bless our, our lives and our homes. Then we have to continue to elevate him above all else. More than these tangible 
things that we hold in our hands. And so godly character must be taught and instilled in our children with the goal that they will carry this out on their own. And so if, we're, if we are truly using the teen years of our children's lives to prepare them for adulthood, then we must raise the expectations of their lives. These are the things that we are instilling in them and showing them the importance of so they can live it out. So that means that we have to live it out in our lives as well. If something is important to God, it must be important to you and me. And so there's a couple areas here, just two I want to focus on when it comes to character, but I think these are two of the, the most vital ones here. And, and again, with, one, with any of these messages, I feel like you could probably make a list that's a lot longer than this, but I do try to get this out on a relatively normal time, you know, in church. Um, so within character, the first thing is, is, is work. The way that you and I approach work in life is part of our character. Now, the subject of work is one that has become increasingly unpopular with people in our culture today. Um, I have talked with, um, with other pastors. I've talked with other people. I've, um, you, many of you know that our church is, is hoping to hire an assistant pastor, so I've, I've had interaction with this. And the younger and younger generations take a more lax approach to work. And I'm not just saying that as an old person. It's, it is a fact that, 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 our genera- that younger generations view work a lot different than you and I did do today. Um, we are dealing with an epidemic. We've been dealing with an epidemic in our country and in our culture for a long time called extended adolescence, where this idea of, of living this carefree life and these things... It, we just continue to extend this on into adulthood. Um, I mean, I remember um, conversations I've had, even with, with kids from our youth group and other places that, you know, they graduate, they go off to college, they don't really know what. And, and I remember, I mean, this kid looked at me one time, and he was just bouncing all over the place, doing all kinds of stuff. I'm like, hey, man, what do you, what do you see yourself doing in life? He's like, I don't know. I mean, I got, I'm like 20, 21 now. I got like five more years before I know what I need to do with my life. I'm like, oh, well, at least you have a plan, you know. And he was just, it's just, it's flapping in the wind, you know, and, and not really wanting to take a biblical approach to, well, I need to do something with my life. God's called me to. You know, it doesn't mean that everybody knows what they want to do with their life immediately. But we need to find something we need to work hard at because that's what God's called us to do. Um. It's taking longer and longer for the generations to, if, if they go to college, they finish that, or to move out, or find a job. It's, it's easier to just stay at home and not do anything with our lives. And in fact, many believe that they can delay their adult life, yet still reach the goals of not having to work at the end of their life faster than the people before them. That just doesn't work. I mean, from a practical standpoint. And so what we have to understand is part of God's created purpose of mankind is work. And you need to look no further than the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. Notice where that is. Genesis chapter what? 
2. We would love to see this came in Genesis chapter 4, right? Because that would mean what? That what had already entered the world? Sin. You realize sin is not the cause of work, right? But God's, part of God's created purpose for mankind is to work. Even from the very beginning, this was the plan. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend it, to keep it, to work, and he said, this is very good. Work was not created because of the fall. No, work, um, work became harder because of the fall. There were ramifications on those things. But God designed mankind to work. So we need to instill in our children, we need to instill in our teens a, a godly work ethic. Now that may mean, um, it may begin carrying out household tasks and how we approach those things. I mean, we live in our home with very small, with, with younger children. I say very small, they're getting older. I'm reminded of that every time they have a birthday like we did last week. Um, but even there, you know, we, we have to begin in our own lives as, with young kids to say, okay, this is how we approach these things, that this is your job, and this is how we do our job. Now, as our kids get older, I always think it's, it's a great thing to encourage them to work outside the home, begin to take that approach outside of that. We need to show them the value and the importance of work, because after all, that is what is expected in, not just in the society we live in, but that's the created intended purpose of God in our lives. And understand that the opposite of work is laziness. That is what the Bible says. And again, this is something that our society struggles with. Uh, now, I'm not here tonight to tell you there's, nothing, you know, there's, something, there's something wrong with having time off or downtime. I mean, Jesus showed us in his ministry, that there is nece- there's necessary times of rest in our lives. We were not created to work 24-7, 365. We were created to, to have rest in our lives. But, as I said before, there's an epidemic of downtime and entertainment overtaking our lives and our world. TV and video games and social media, all of these things are vying for our attention seeking to turn us away from our responsibilities. And, and perhaps now, more than ever, it is easier to get sucked into things that pull you away from work because you carry all of those distractions in your pocket most of the time. Right? And it's easy for us to, to, to get off track and get distracted by the things that we have going on when we're supposed to be focusing on what God has called us to do. The Bible has very clear instructions about those who do not see the value of work. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. This passage that Solomon wrote to his son shows us there are consequences to not working. That's the natural outcome of if you're not going to work. Proverbs 26, 13 through 16, the lazy man says, there's a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. 
As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Frankly, laziness makes you a fool. I mean, look what he says at the end of that passage. The lazy man who doesn't do anything, he's wiser than people who are actually wise. In his own eyes, he's wiser than people who actually know what they're talking about. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. I won't take a poll tonight of how many of us have used that in our home to talk to our kids, right? Um, there, when I was growing up in our youth group in Atlanta, there was a dear, dear, young, dear older couple who, um, who took an interest in all of the teens. They prayed for us, um, and one of the things they did as part of their ministry, um, they would always um, find out your favorite candy, and they would buy it for you for your birthday, and they'd, it was just they'd write you a note and tell you they're praying for you, but... Um, I remember when this dear, this dear saint, she passed away several years ago, and in her Bible, this verse was, was underlined, and it said next to it, no worky, no eaty. That was, that was just the way she was. That's how she remembered things. And so sometimes we say that around our house, no worky, no eaty, right? Because that's what the Bible says, that if you want to be provided for and these things, you have to learn to approach work the way God sees it. God values work. Because it's part of his created purpose for us to bring him glory. And if we recognize that work is a part of God's calling in our lives, we begin to view work very differently. It's not just a task that we must carry out and one day will be done. But instead, it's God's calling and purpose on my life. And that doesn't matter if you're the pastor of the church or if you're the man uh, who's, who's fixing cars down at the garage or if you're the guy picking up garbage on the side of the street or if you're running the, 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 the bakery in town. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, that is what God's called you to do to bring honor and glory to himself. There's no work that gets carried out that's more glorifying to God than anybody else. Unless, of course, what you're doing is sin, okay? Then that's a whole different, you know, ball of wax. But the attitude that we approach, work with, is what's important that we honor and glorify God. And so as God's servants, the way we work and the way we act towards work should reflect him to those around us. How many of you in your life At some point, maybe it's now or maybe it's in the past, have worked in a secular work environment, not a Christian, primary Christian work environment, okay? Now, how many of you would say that the people around you who don't know the Lord, they view work as we just got to get through it, we got to grin and bear it, we got to, they have a different view of work than maybe you do as a Christian, right? It's just a necessary evil. Hey, I've got X amount of years and then I'll be done with this place. Frankly, I mean, the other side of it is, hey, I got X amount of hours, and I can go on the weekend and party and do whatever I want, right? And I get it. There are things about our work lives that sometimes we don't enjoy. Sometimes it's the processes. Sometimes it's the people, okay? But if that's what God has called us to do, then that's part of glorifying God. I mean, I've been in, in places and worked places, and it's like, well, this is not what I'm going to do the rest of my life, but this is where God has me right now. And so I'm going to try to glorify God the best I can here every day. 
And that attitude is what we need to teach our children. And you know what? Our kids may have to work some places that they're like, oh, I just sure don't do this for the rest of my life. Okay. But that's where God has you right now. So how can you serve God in that spot right now? How can you honor him? How can you glorify him? How can you be a testimony to other people as you approach that job? We need to instill in our children a, a godly approach to work. Secondly, we need to instill in our children a godly way to, to approach decision-making. And as our kids grow older, they are faced with a greater number of decisions in their life. I mean, can you, can you just look at all the things our kids, decisions our kids have to make as they get older? They begin to think things like, okay, what will I spend my time on or my money on, right? As they begin, especially if they have a job and they begin to take in their own income, then they are making those decisions. Where will I go to college or do I go to college? What am I going to do with my life? What is the career I'm going to pursue? What are the, what are the things I'm going to invest in so that I can, I can make wise decisions down the road or, 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 or work down the road? Who am I going to date or marry? And you, you know this as an adult, and your kids are figuring this out. Life is full of decisions. And part of our character is how we make decisions. You make, I don't know the number, okay? I'm sure there's studies out there. I'm, so I'm going to use um, a great number. You, you make a bajillion decisions every day. Look it up, okay? It's a bajillion, all right? It's in the Pastor Andrew Standard Measurements Dictionary, okay? Now, a lot of those decisions don't have a lot of bearing on your life. You know, like when, I look, when you look in your closet in the morning, like, hey, what am I going to wear to church today, right? I mean, probably that's not going to have this spiritual or, or whatever bearing on your life, okay? You just pick something out and you wear it. I know for some of you, maybe a little more than that, but for me, that's how it is, okay? But then there are points in our lives where these decisions, they become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and they have greater and greater consequences. So we need to begin to help our kids understand how do we make decisions. So you have to ask yourself, how does, one, I mean, how does the world make decisions? Well, they ask things like, what benefits me the most, right? What makes me feel good? That's the decision I'm going to make. I like this one, you know, what does my gut say? What will help me Follow my heart, right? None of those are reasons or ways for us as Christians to make decisions. As Christians, we are called to make decisions differently than the world we live in. We are called instead to make decisions in a way that glorifies God. And leaning on the wisdom of man is a disastrous way to make decisions. Because our sinful thoughts will lead us astray. And if you are a Christian, please do not write the devil off as, as well, he's not, he's not worried about me anymore because I, I, I'm, I'm saved. Satan will still seek to trap you and keep you from being completely used by God. Because if he cannot have your soul, he will make you useless to God at all costs. Now Israel, the nation of Israel, learned this lesson the hard way. God was very specific. He came to Joshua, and this is what he said in Joshua chapter 1. 
He said, if you want to be successful and you want to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and give them the land that I promised to give you a long time ago, you need to meditate and know my law. You need to follow these things. You need to, to follow me. And if you will do this, then I will give you, I, I, you will be successful in these things. And so, when the Israelites approach Jericho, God comes to Joshua. He says, here's the plan. Of course, you probably know if you read that story, they were supposed to walk around the wall one time for six days, and the seventh day, walk around seven times, they all cried out, and God brought the walls And you think, man, if that's the way it goes, they probably had a great career going through. You read the book of Joshua, it's kind of like this. Because they didn't always follow God. They didn't always come to God and see what he had to say. And God had been very specific. The people of Canaan had sinned against God. And so now, part of their judgment was that God was going to use the Israelites. That he was going to wipe these people out in his judgment of their sin. And as they go through the land of Israel, God's given them great victories. And then we meet a group of people called the Gibeonites. And they've heard what God is doing through the Israelites. They've heard how God is is wiping out people. And you know, they don't really want that to happen to them. And so what they do is they disguise themselves and they, they pretend like they've come on a, on a long journey to the Israelites. They're from another place, and we want to make a treaty with you. And, and so they offered some what, what seemed like some very convincing arguments and a sound case because they had worn these shoes that were all worn out and these clothes that were all worn out. And they, they had this bread that was dry and crusty, these wineskins that were, that, were, that were burst, and you know, they were old. And, and so look... What happens in Joshua chapter 9 and verse 14? Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, that's the Gibeonite provisions, and they did not ask counsel of the Lord. What does that verse tell you? It tells you that the Israelites went and looked at the goods of the Gibeonites instead of turning to the wisdom of God to make their decision. They said, oh, well, we can... We see that. I mean, look at all this stuff they brought. I mean, they wouldn't lie, right? This is who they are. And as God's servants, our decisions are to be made not through man's wisdom, but through his wisdom. And this is a very disastrous thing for the Israelites. It would, it would plague the nation for hundreds of years to come. And if we want to please God with our lives, we need to do as he directs, not lean on our own selves. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. We don't have to wonder, we don't have to guess. We can follow God asking him and, and see him direct in our lives. And no, that doesn't mean that God's going to shout down from heaven and say, you go do this. But what we begin to see is is God leading us in our lives and helping us to make these decisions. We must teach our teens, our children, that following God in our decisions that we make isn't just an option. It's the only option. 
But I think sometimes we treat it as like, well, I mean, that's one way to approach it. It's the only way to approach it. It's the only way that's worth following is to follow God. And understand that decision-making affects many areas of our lives. It, it affects how we manage or prioritize our time. You have to make decisions. How am I going to prioritize the things I need to do today? How am I going to prioritize the things I get done with my life? How am I going to manage my time well so that I don't get to the end of the day and say, well, there's another day wasted? It's going to, it's going to involve how do we spend our money? You know, that's, a, that's another thing, you know, in our society we struggle with. Where do, we, where do we spend our money? How do we effectively spend our money? How do we not rack up large debts and all of these things, right? It goes back to this decision-making. What we wear, believe it or not, even the things we might wear in our lives or do, I mean, that's going to be a decision we make. What we do with our free time, right? All of these are decision-making things. And all of these decisions that we make, um, I think the phrase in, um, it, it, that people use sometimes is this decision stacking that comes out of our lives, right? All of these things one on top of the other. This contributes to our character. They define who we are and reflect to others around us who we serve. And if we want to bring honor and glory to God, we need to seek to please and follow him in every decision that we make. We have to walk through then with our teens how we make those decisions. Because remember, the older our kids get, the more the question seriously is asked, well, why? Why do we do that? So we need to teach our kids how to make godly decisions and thereby cultivate godly character in their lives. And, and if you will do that, if you will cultivate in the lives of your kids godly character, understand that does not go unnoticed by the world we live in. There's this guy in the Bible, you may have heard of him, his name is Daniel. And he faced opposition from those around him in the Babylonian kingdom. From the very beginning of Daniel's time in the land of Babylon, he began to make decisions that glorified God and didn't just give him an easy life. And as he did that, he faced more and more, he faced increasing opposition in his life. And so in Daniel chapter 6, when you get to Daniel chapter 6, um, understand that the, the kingdom has changed hands, right? It's gone from Nebuchadnezzar to his son or grandson, um, who, who was uh, Belshazzar, who was a very evil, wicked person. Now it's gone to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, falls under their empire. And Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, we read this. So the governors and satraps that Daniel is over, because there's 120 of these guys, and Daniel's the top guy, sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could not find, they, they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful nor was there any error or fault found in him. What is, what is it that's going on here? Daniel is a man of godly character. And other people take note of that. If you're going to live your life different than the world around you, because that's what God has called you to do, then it's going to be noticed by other people. You're going to see it. 
And so we need to instill in our, our kids, as we prepare them to go out into the world and to live in the world, we need to prepare them with a godly character. Secondly tonight is the area of relationships. Relationships are an inescapable part of life. And for the Christian, relationships with fellow believers are vitally important as we seek to live our lives to the glory of God. And and, and if you've been here for any length of time, you'll understand that one of the things I hammer on a regular basis is we must build relationships with other people. That is the goal of our church. That is a goal that I, I try to live out my own life. That it's not just enough to be like, well, hey, how you doing? You know, this, that, and the other. We want to build meaningful relationships. If you want to grow in your Christianity and you want, to, you want to follow God, you have to build meaningful relationships with other people. The Lone Ranger approach doesn't work in life. Um, and if you want to be able to stand for God on your own, you need other people around you. And so, practically speaking, our teens, our kids, then need to learn some basic social skills. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just understand, you need to teach your kids how to interact with other people. You need to teach your kids how to relate to other people. Now, some of our kids are more naturally gifted at this than other people. And it's like, it's not... And, and, and please understand, it's not that like, well, if you're not like them, then you're not any good. Not, that's not what we're saying. There's not this some like, we have to attain to this certain level. But we should be able to, to interact with other people. There should be a basic, this is how we interact with other people. We show interest in them. We, we communicate with people. Okay? And like I said, um, some are more gifted at that than others. Um, you know, it's really funny. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. Um, I'm an extrovert. Did you know that? I'm an extrovert. <laughs> but I married an introvert. Okay? Um, and you can see how that's going in our kids' lives. <laughs> we don't have an introvert among them, right? I say all the time, oh, they get that from their mom. People look at me like, yeah, right, okay? Um, and even in that, okay, just because someone's an extrovert, by the way, doesn't mean they understand how to relate to people. You still have to teach them. Because the natural bent of man is, I'm an extrovert. Let me tell you all about my life, <laughs> right? And so within our kids, we have to, to teach them how to, to interact with others. And then we have to see there's, there's three major areas of relationships that this affects. Number one, um, in the area of friends. I don't care what people say, and I have heard Lots of different things over the years as a pastor, especially as a youth pastor. But everyone likes to have a friend. Even the ones who tell you, well, I don't need friends. They want friends. Everyone likes to have a friend. So we need to teach our teens the value of friends. That means um, we need to model this for our kids. What it means, how we make friends, how we treat our friends, the value of our friends, And also, by the way, the balance of our friendships. Our friendships are not more important than the ministry of our family God has given us, parents. We do not sacrifice our family because I want to go hang out with my friend. Our family comes first because that's the first ministry God has given to us. At the same time, we balance that with 
the other side of, well, I'm too busy to, to get out and, and be friends with other people. No, there's a balance to that too. We have to reach out. Because Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. If, you are, um, if you're trying to sharpen a piece of metal, you don't walk up to a tree and start beating on it with a piece of metal, right? Because what, is that, what does that wood do to that blade over time? It, it begins to dull it, right? If you want to sharpen metal, my grandfather, um, when he was still alive, um, he was a machinist for a living. But I remember growing up that um, my mom, whenever our kitchen knives would get dull, we were going to visit my grandparents. She would wrap them all up. And we'd take him with us. And I remember he would sit there. I mean, he was, it was just such a patient. Uh, what he did is just, was an art. He had this little wet block. And he would sit there and just shh, shh, back and forth with that knife, right? My mom jokes that every time she, he did that, sometime the next week she was going to cut herself on one of those knives because they're sharper than they've ever been before. And um, I remember, I remember sitting there with him. He tried to teach me how to do it. I never learned. But... Um, he didn't use a piece of wood. He used a wet block, stone, this wet block. He used, he used a piece of metal to sharpen that. It's the same way with our Christian lives. Growing spiritually is much easier with the right kind of friends in our lives. And so we need to encourage our kids, we need to encourage our teens into God-honoring friendships. The, teen, the, the friends that your kids have, especially your teens, the friends that they have in their lives should challenge them to Christ-likeness if your child is a follower of Christ. And so we need to talk to our teens, our kids and our teens, about their friends. You need to know who your kids' friends are. You need to have those friends over. You need to get to know them. And model for them those friendships in your own life. Because our friends define us. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. But the companion of fools will be destroyed. That's what will happen. So along with this, we need to warn our teens then the dangers of wrong friends. Because just as friends can draw us closer to God, they can also drive us further from God. And so, you know what? We should, as parents, also work through with our kids some friendships they should be wary of in their lives. Now, this one has to be done with grace, and it has to be done carefully, because you're not there to slander somebody else. You're not there to say, well, you should, no, don't hang out with so-and-so, da, da, da. But talk through with, and again, if you're having these conversations with your kids, well, so-and-so said, something, said this today, it's not very biblical, you've got to work through with, okay, well, let's talk about that. What does the Bible say about that? It's not about you versus them, it's about God and his word. But we do need to help our kids begin to understand, not slandering someone, but understand our teens, that there are some people in our lives that probably can't be our closest confidants because they're not walking with the Lord. If we're going to walk with God, then we need to, we need to, to uh, closely associate with those who are following him. Along with this, help your teen then understand what it means to be a good friend. I don't want us to fall into what I call the consumer mentality. Um, 
If you walk into church and say, what can you do for me? Okay, this is not UPS. Okay, what can Brown do for you? This is, who can I serve today in the love of Christ? That's what the church body is. It's not enough to simply look for right friends, but we need to be that godly friend to someone else. And being a friend is more than just hanging out. It's, it's iron sharpening iron. It's showing the love of Christ. It's working through problems. When problems arise within friendships, the nature of that friendship often gets revealed. Real friends stick, stick around and work through real issues in a godly way. Every relationship is going to have problems. And all the married people said, amen, right? Okay, you're all too spiritual for that, right? How many of you married folks have ever had a problem in your relationship with your spouse? Okay, it may just be like, who ate the cookies out of the cookie jar, right? Okay. How many of you are the problem? No, no, don't, don't raise your hand, okay? But if you're going to stay married and you're going to stay faithful and you're going to, you have to learn to work through problems. Those things happen, right? How many of you have been married for, for any number of years? You know, meet this young couple and they're getting married and, oh, they're just perfect. You know, they never do anything wrong. I'm like, okay. We'll be here six months later and we'll talk, right? We'll work through those things in a biblical way. Within friendship, teach your teens the value of the place of what I call redemptive relationships. Um, over the years, you've probably heard numerous messages or talks or these sorts of things on how we reach people for the gospel. This is why I hammer relationships. I'm going to tell you right now. I firmly believe the best way to reach someone with the gospel is to develop a friendship, a relationship with them. That doesn't mean that God doesn't use the tracks to hand to somebody or the, the short amount of time you have with somebody to share with them the gospel. You should be able to do those things too. But to see real change affected in people's lives for the gospel, develop a relationship with them. And I've talked to many of you, and you have people in your lives, hey, I'm trying to reach so-and-so for the gospel. And I pray for those people with you. Sometimes you bring them here, and, 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 and I, get inter- I get to meet them here at church or other places. But we need to reach out to the lost world around us. It is not the frozen chosen and us four are no more going through life, and, well, we'll just figure it out. You know, God will sort them out in the end. But we need to look around with compassion and reach out to other people and teach our kids to reach out to other people and If you homeschool your kids, which I know many of us in this room do, that means you might have to make a little extra effort to go out and find some people to reach with the gospel. Put your kids in places and situations where they'll be able to build these relationships. Now, so we should encourage our teens and our kids in the area of redemptive relationships, but remind them of the goal of those relationships, to reach people with the gospel. A relationship with an unsaved person is not a place where you take your wisdom from on how to live life. Because they don't know the Lord, they're not following the Lord. And and, and you know what sinners like to do? They like to sin. Which is um, 
you know, it amazes me when we talk about things going on in our country and these sorts of things. People are just like, I can't believe. I'm like, they don't know the Lord. I mean, of course we do stupid things. And very quickly follow that up with, and so were we without the gospel. And so we need to, to keep these relationships in their proper place. And, and if we're going to encourage our kids to do this, we have to model it with our lives. We have to reach out with the gospel. Lastly, in friendships, within friendships, teach them the necessity of discipleship. Do you want your child to live a successful, God-honoring Christian life? If the answer is yes, that requires personal, purposeful investment. You as a parent are the primary discipler of your children. That, that is hands down not an argument. You are the discipler of your child, primarily. But discipleship shouldn't stop there. You need to help them build other relationships where they will be discipled. And if that's going to happen, you need to, especially at first, be the enabler and the driving force behind these relationships. One of the things I love about the church is how many people, godly people, it puts in the lives of not just myself, but the lives of my kids. So you make it a point to put those people in your kids' lives. You get them over for dinner. You go out with them. Or, especially if you've got like a teen, like a teen guy or teen, you know, teen girl, one of those, you, you get a, a man or a woman, whichever is appropriate in that situation, and you say, hey, listen, I would like my teen to learn from you. To be dis- I would like you to be a discipler in their life. Can I give you 20 bucks and you take, you just take them out to lunch, just invite them out to lunch sometime and, and spend time with them? You have to be an initiator of these things. I think here's what happens in discipleship. We, it's not that we don't desire to be discipled or be invested in, but we just sit out here and go, who's going to disciple me? Who's going to reach out to me? And then we get real bitter because nobody reached out to me. If you want something like that, You've got to go after it a little bit. You have to be willing to put yourself out there. Can I give you an example? Um, As a pastor, um, one of the things that I know I need in my life as a young pastor is I need input and wisdom from other pastors. And some of you know that like an hour and a half from here, the guy who was my youth pastor in the last couple years of high school is a pastor down in Davidson, Michigan. And let me tell you, that guy is a busy guy. I mean, they got a Christian school, they've got this and that, and all these things he does. And so, one of the things I want to do is spend time with him. But here's what's going to happen. If I just sit around and go, well, I hope that we get together, guess what? It's not going to happen because he's got enough going on. So every year, I get on my little computer and my little email, you know, and I send him an email. I say, hey, here's some dates I was thinking. I'd like to grab lunch. I put about four or five of them. I'd like to grab lunch on these dates. Can you tell me if they'll work or if there's other days that work for you? And we set it up at the beginning of the year. These are the times we're going to go out. And we're going to have lunch together, and we're going to fellowship. And I'm going to go, I, I'll you know, go in with this idea, okay, there's, probably, there's usually some things I want to talk about. Like, hey, I need some perspective on some things. And uh, I, I mean, I've told him. I said, look, you're a busy guy. I wanna, if I want this, I'm, I'm going to have to try to, I'm going to have to make it happen a little bit. 
If you want your kids to be discipled, you're going to have to make it happen a little bit. And not just sit around and go, well, nobody, nobody cared. People do care, but, but if you care as the primary disciple, you need to identify those people are and put them, in the, put them in the lives of your kids. And then as they get older and, and, and they want more of these relationships or you see the need for that, teach them how to seek out those relationships in their lives. Hey, you know, I think, I think Mr. So-and-so would be a good person for you to learn some things from about the Lord. I'd like you to go talk to him this Sunday. Say, hey, could I spend some time with you and learn from you? And then as they get older, then teaching them how they disciple other people. And again, you have to model this with your life. And, and may I speak for a minute to the generations who have maybe raised kids, your older generation, you've raised kids, they're older. You can model this in your lives as well as you disciple other people within the body of Christ. And I've said it before, and and, and please don't let it fall on, well, that's just what he says every once in a while. Seriously, men, ladies, I would just, I think it would be an awesome thing if we had some of our, our, maybe some folks who are down the road of life a little bit more, who walked up to one of these teen guys, these teen girls, put their arm around them and said, listen, I just want to take you to lunch this week and I just want to talk. I want to listen to what you have to say, and I want to spend some time with you. That's all it takes. We get this idea in our mind that discipleship is like, okay, now we have this course, and we're going to sit down for 12 weeks, and we're going to. That's not discipleship. I mean, it can be a tool of discipleship, but discipleship isn't a course. Discipleship is life, doing life together. And so within friendship, we have to teach our kids the necessity of discipleship. Okay, you're looking at your handout, and you're like, wow, it is 6 o'clock. And how are we going to get through all this? We're not. We're going to stop right here tonight, okay? And next week, um, we're going to finish this out. Um, But I hope that this is helpful to you and challenging to you in your life of how do we help our kids develop a godly perspective in their lives um, that we can live for his honor and his glory. And these are some of the areas with, with character, with work, and how we approach decisions. And then within relationships, how do we... Um, how, does, how do we help them understand what, what a biblical, godly friendship looks like? And then specifically, how do we reach people with the gospel and find discipleship in our lives? And by the way, before I finish, um, you never outgrow the need for discipleship. You as an adult in your life need people in your life to disciple you as well. So put yourself in those, in those positions. Um, Put yourself in that position of, hey, I'd like to learn some things from you about the Word of God. I'd like to spend some time with you. I'd like to talk about these things. Um, and, and I mean, I have people like that within this church and other places. I, I, I spend time with them just to try to learn a little bit more about who God is. And so that, that's something we have to model in our lives as well. Father, we thank you for the time to be here tonight to study your Word together. I pray this will be helpful in our lives. You would challenge us to these ends of how we raise our kids in a biblical way. Lord, may we, may we raise them to follow you, to serve you, and may we show them the importance of doing things in a God-honoring way and building godly character and then uh, living out relationships that honor you. Lord, as we look in the scriptures, we see guys like Paul and Timothy who built such vibrant discipleship relationships. We pray that our church would model such things, that we as parents, as members, 
would model such things for the lives of our kids. We could see them grow effectively for you and do great and mighty things for you. Be with us as we depart in a few minutes, go into our weeks. May we honor you, glorify you, lift you up this week. May we um, be a light in our workplaces. May we reach out to those around us. And may we ultimately, with our lives, just give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In your name we pray. Amen.